I'd like to invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're continuing our series in the book of 1 Peter. Living hope for life as exiles is the theme of this entire book. And today we come to chapter 4 beginning in verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 4. I'd like to invite you to please stand for the reading of God's word. This is God's holy and authoritative word. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word. You may be seated. I wonder, what would you do if you knew the world was ending exactly one week from today? Would you panic? Would you despair? Would you rejoice? What would your plans be? In verse 7 of our text, Peter announces that the end of history is coming. The end of all things is at hand. My working sermon title at first for today was the end of the world, but I thought that seemed a bit gloomy, and so I went with life together in the last days. (laughs) Peter is continuing the thought in verse 7 that he introduced in verses 5 and 6 and really throughout this letter that Christ will come again and consummate the kingdom of Christ. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. God's great plan of salvation will soon reach its final goal. The end of all things is at hand. And this is what so many in the world today fail to understand, that the world as we now experience, as we experience it, will not last forever. The days of our exile are numbered. The hope that we have lived with all of our days will soon be realized. The unfading and undefiled inheritance will be ours. Sin will be destroyed. Death will be defeated. We will feast with hearts of joy. And Christ will be triumphant. The end of all things is at hand. Here's what the New Testament teaches, that with the death and resurrection of Christ, we are now living in what the New Testament calls the last days. 
History is in its last chapter. This moment is, as one 80s band said, the final countdown. The end of all things is at hand. Some Christians you may know are obsessed with end time questions. There have been a number of people, televangelists, self-appointed apostles, cult leaders, who have believed that on a certain date, the world would end. That is always an exceedingly lame idea promoted by immature and silly people who do not understand the scriptures. There's one man who picked a date in 2011, but when that didn't work out, he moved it to 2012. And then when that failed, he moved it to 2013, saying that a day with God is as a year. was sort of his, you know, argument. I was like, really? That's what you're doing? He was uh, convicted of tax evasion in 2012. Spent three years in federal prison. We do not know the hour, but again and again, Scripture declares that the end is near. In Romans 13, verse 11, in the context of calling Christians to walk in love, it says in Romans 13, 11, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And in Hebrews 10, 25, it says that we see the day drawing near. We see the day drawing near and that is why we cannot neglect meeting together to encourage each other and stir one another up to love and good deeds. 1 Peter 4 makes this same connection. The end of all things is at hand, therefore, implication the Christian community is to be something glorious. And you see in this passage the repetition of one another throughout the text. The, the coming of Christ in the future gives shape to the community of Christ in the present. Eschatology is not for speculation. It is for transformation. What we believe about the future changes how we live now. Put your end times charts away. I don't know who Gog and Magog are, but I know Christ is coming back and I know this passage is how we must, as a church, live together. We do not withdraw from the world. We do not go up to a mountaintop and wait for the day. We press into relationships and love and service with all of our hearts. What we're called to is gloriously ordinary and mundane. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, have someone over to your house. It's the end of the world. Practice hospitality. Love one another earnestly. Use your gifts in the church. It looks a whole lot like going about what our lives ought to be. In the present. And that is in part because Christians do not fear the final day because we are in Christ and our hope is sure. When the final trumpet sounds, we are content to be found sitting around a fire, telling stories and laughing with friends and marveling at the grace of God that has rescued us from wrath. 
We have a hope in life and death, and his name is Jesus. Now, I want to look at four commands here, and I do believe that these will challenge us. It is, as you know, not my normal method of preaching to lay into the good people of this church family and to tell you uh, to change course and do better, and that is because you guys are an amazing church and you are faithful in so many things. And yet, I do think as I've studied this passage, that for more than a few people, especially after these past two years, more than a few of us need a close examination of our priorities, and in particular, an examination of our practice of community and participation and service in the church. I think there are adjustments and life changes that are needed by some. And so let's be okay with allowing this passage to challenge us and to convict us and to adjust us where needed. After all, all of scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for reproof and correction and training in righteousness. So part of what God is doing in our hearts here today is reproving, correcting, and training us to be the community to have the kind of life together that he calls his people to have in the last days as we await the return of our Lord and Savior. So four commands. First, be clear-headed. Be clear-headed. Verse seven, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So here Peter is saying, think clearly, think carefully, Take control of your thought life. (laughs) Rather than being controlled by circumstances and current events and emotions, you must have your mind governed by the truth of Scripture. As exiles in this world, we are sober-minded, we are clear-headed, we have given thought to these things, and we are seeing reality as it truly is, and therefore we are prepared for life in this world. Notice the commands here begin not with what we do, but with how we think. Self-controlled, sober-minded, which then influences our prayer life. We're told to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. See, the Christian is one who accurately discerns reality, and then as a result, we are mentally prepared. We're mentally prepared for life in this world, and then... We pray prayers to God that express genuine dependence. Lord, I need you. Oh, how I need you. Every hour, I need you. And prayers that express a sense of expectation for what God will do. Even now, we ought to pray in our hearts that these qualities in this passage would be realized in our hearts and in our life together. That's first, be clear-headed. Second command, love earnestly. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Above all is the language of priority. This is what we are to give ourselves to. Love is the great distinguishing mark of the church. We are a counterculture, we are distinct from the world. Because of our loving disposition toward each other, above all, keep 
loving one another earnestly. Let love be your passion. Let love be your priority. Many things are important, but there is one that we pursue above all. And that's because you can have knowledge, you can have truth, you can have theological discernment and sound doctrine, but if you do not have love, you are nothing, according to 1 Corinthians 13. Paul Tripp talks about this uh, in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He says, he talks about how we would so much rather lob grenades of truth into people's lives than sacrificially love them. And it's true. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Love each other deeply. Love each other constantly. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And in Ephesians 5.2, it says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. What is the great motivation? What is the great reality that compels us to walk in love to one another? It is the love God has shown us in Christ. And it is my great joy to remind you today that in Christ we have been loved with an everlasting love. Our sins are many, but Christ in his great love died for our sins in our place, bearing the judgment that we deserve. And now our story and our song is that God has satisfied us in the morning with his steadfast love that we might rejoice and be glad all our days. We are the redeemed of the Lord. We are those who are the recipients of his undeserved, unmerited love and favor. And he has loved us in Christ, giving his son for us so that we might be a people who walk in love toward one another, sharing the love, overflowing with the love that we have received. Uh, Peter's emphasized this before in this letter. Chapter 1, verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Chapter 2, verse 17, love the brotherhood. Chapter 3, verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And now, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. It's repeated again and again because it is the great priority. And this love finds expression in our life together in so many ways. In verse 8, Peter calls attention to one specific application of love that I want us to examine our own lives in, and that is, verse 8, since love covers a multitude of sins. He's drawing from Proverbs 10, verse 12, which says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Love covers a multitude of of sins. Now think about this with me. Do you know what the assumption is behind Peter's statement that love covers a multitude of sins? The assumption is that in the church, among Christians, among fellow believers and brothers and sisters, you and I will be sinned against in a multitude of ways. On the short list of counsel that I give to 
Those joining our church family, I would say this, welcome to Covenant Fellowship, expect to be sinned against in a multitude of ways. Because if you live in genuine community with others over time, you will sin against others and you will be sinned against by others. Love requires vulnerability. And if we insist on protecting ourselves from ever being hurt or ever being sinned against, our hearts will shrivel up and our lives will be loveless. It is not what God has called us to. And this verse, in fact, speaks to those who have been hurt by other Christians or have had bad experiences in a church. It needs to be said when we're sinned against that what we experience is wrong And at the same time, we cannot give up the command to love. The New Testament vision of community, God's vision of community, life together in the last days, is that we love one another with a love that is continually covering a multitude of sins. Now, what does it mean to... to, cover sins. This is important. It does not mean that we ignore or tolerate sin or fail to hold people accountable for their actions. Rather, we cover sins by forgiving them with hearts full of mercy. This is what it means to cover a multitude of sins. Someone said that love takes the oxygen out of sin the way that a blanket chokes the air from something that's called on fire. You, you, you cover it. Love covers. And we, brothers and sisters, need to resolve, to have this conviction, to relate to the sins of others with mercy and forbearance and long-suffering. I, I am begging you, I plead with you, do not be a fault finder in the church. Do not linger on the wrongs others have done. Don't carry offenses for months and years. Don't enjoy exposing error. Don't escalate conflict. Love covers a multitude of sins. This is the exact opposite of being fragile and taking offense to everything and being easily triggered. I am concerned that ours is the sensitive generation, thin-skinned, overly sensitive, quick to take offense, traumatized by every wrong done against us. And this is the great ruiner of Christian community. Here God is calling us to be gracious, to, to cultivate this gracious ability to respond to an insensitive word or to an unkind act, to a multitude of sins with mercy. You cover it. You forgive it. Is it easy? No. Is it beautiful? Yes. Is it what God calls us to? Yes. And we, we brothers and sisters, can cover the sins of others because justice has been paid in full. The wrongs you have done against me have already been covered with the blood of Christ. So how can I not cover your sins in love? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Command number three. Command number three is show hospitality. 
This is one that I was praying about this week and was reflecting on the fact that just where we're at in this moment and all that we've been through over these past two years and in light of COVID, I think this command is one that ought to take on heightened importance in this moment. I want to encourage and exhort each one of us to make a priority out of hospitality this spring and this summer. Hospitality is one of the great marks of Christian community. It's not optional. God does command it. Romans 12 verse 13 commands us to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13 verse 2 commands us to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And in verse 9 of our passage, show hospitality to one another. I, in reflecting on this, I marvel at how practical Christianity is. If your idea of Christianity is that you just come to church on a Sunday morning, hear a good sermon, and then go back to life as normal, or if you think that God doesn't press into the details of your life uh, in terms of very specific commands, there's a need to readjust your understanding of what the Christian life entails. Here, God is telling us that he wants us to have people over to our house. <laughs> and we say, well, I'm busy. Yes, we all are busy. The question is, are we busy with God's priorities or with our own? Show hospitality to one another, says the Lord. And God has ordained that community, discipleship, counseling, and evangelism happen around the dinner table and in living rooms. His mission advances. The church is built as brothers and sisters open up their homes to one another and practice life together. Our culture... American culture is deeply individualistic and selfish. And one way this finds expression is in the modern tendency to isolate ourselves. Your home is a gift from God to be stewarded for blessing others. And so think strategically about hospitality. Plan for this. Have people over, hear their stories, learn about them, laugh with them, encourage them, care for them, rejoice with them in times of joy, grieve with them in times of sorrow. Your home can be a place where the love of God is shown to others. Show hospitality. And it's striking. Peter adds here that we are to do this without grumbling. So you're like, okay, I'm having a lot of people, like, okay, wait, do this, show hospitality to one another without grumbling is a command we need to hear. Apparently, hospitality is costly and at times undesirable. And we may be tempted to approach hospitality, either going to someone else's house or having someone over to our own with a spirit of grumbling. God desires happy hospitality. And so when you find your heart and mind going in the direction of, oh, I have to do so much to prepare. Oh, I would so much rather have a quiet evening. Oh, it's going to cost so much time and money. There's other things that I would rather do. Remember, without grumbling, God commands us to do this act of grace without grumbling. He wants us to look forward to it as the posture of our heart. Forget about what we say. Our heart should be, we get to do this 
as a part of the end time community of Christ and part of our life together. And we need this. We get to have people over. God has welcomed us into his family and his home with joy when it cost him everything. And so let us stop complaining and welcome others. I encourage self-assessment. Look at what this month has been in the realm of hospitality. Look at last month. Consider the coming month and plan for practicing hospitality. Fourth, and the final command here, is to serve one another. Serve one another. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, so every Christian, every one of us has received a gift from God, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. The varied grace of God is on display in the church. In our service, we are displaying gloriously the diversity of God's varied grace. In Virginia, there are caverns where there is an incredible musical instrument that's called the Great Stalactite Organ. Uh, it's considered the largest musical instrument in the world because it is more than three acres in size. And inside of these caves, there are thousands of stalactites, these, these icicles in stone hanging in the cave. And when each stalactite is struck with a mallet that is connected by wires to a central console, an, an organ, it makes its own distinct sound. It was created over a three year period as the organ builder explored the cave and found the right stalactite for each note in the organ. In many cases, he was shaving and cutting uh, them to be just perfect to make the full range of notes that was needed. It is a musical masterpiece created by varied notes. The church of Jesus Christ makes its own beautiful and glorious music as each member contributes to the song with their own varied gifts. None of them being the same, each of them being of immense value. Every Christian has received a gift and every Christian, every Christian should play an active role in the strengthening of the church. If someone were to come up to you and ask you, how do you use your gifts to serve the church? What would you say? There is great variety in gifts. Uh, in fact, our, our text gives some of these, really two large categories are given in verse 11. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. However we serve, whether in word or in deed. Have you ever noticed some are better at speaking and some are better at doing? And this is how God has designed his community. There are speaking gifts and serving gifts. Speaking gifts include prophecy, teaching and preaching, tongues, exhortation, sharing the gospel. Those who speak are exhorted to speak the oracles of God in scripture. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Pastors teach the word uh, in order to equip you to 
Speak the word to one another in encouragement, in prophecy, discipleship, songwriting, counseling, teaching, evangelism. There are speaking gifts that God gives to the body. And then serving gifts, which include giving, leading, mercy, helps, administration, hospitality, healing, and more. I was reflecting on this command to serve and just thinking about how in our church family, I see people serving all over the place. Before the service, I was gathered up here to review the plans for the service with a small army of over a dozen people who have various roles in serving in part of the service. Um, and not just on the Sunday mornings, but throughout the week, so many are serving. Ashley and Shannon are two youth in the church who decided to lead a Bible study. Uh, Mary is a grandmother who watches kids for other families and brings them meals. Jorge faithfully serves our Spanish-speaking members, translating sermons, leading meetings. Lenny disciples men in the church on his own initiative. Anita started a ministry with letters at the prison, writing back and forth with inmates about the Bible. Chick and other men meet weekly to pray. There are couples I know like Lee and Kim and Adam and Bethany who are heroic in opening up their homes. Dan and Jeannie have served the church for decades and now lead a divorce care ministry. Here's one of the things I want to say and is so important for us to understand as we seek to have every Christian in the church serving. You do not need a formal position or role in order to serve. You don't need an official title or a structured program. You do not need pastoral permission. You can go and serve. Also, don't make the mistake of thinking that you need to be gifted in a particular area in order to serve. Don't start with, where am I gifted? Start with, where is their need? Where can I serve? It may be that some of you realize, as you assess this area in particular of serving, that you have drifted from the call of God. You realize, I... How are you serving the church? You think, boy, I, I ought to be doing more. We talked about this as pastors. We have a table set up in the lobby today for those who realize I, I want to do more. I want to serve. It's for those especially who don't even know exactly what you want to do or how you want to serve. You're not signing up for anything in particular other than to get more information about opportunities to serve and to say, I, want, I don't want to be on the periphery of the church. I want to be involved in using my gifts and using my time and energy to serve the church in some way. And so I encourage you to sign up after the service. Be a part of our, of our life together as well. Sign up for uh, the women's retreat if you haven't. Remember our Life Together conference in May. Plan to be there for that uh, two-day event where we continue to consider this theme of our, our life together. Now let me continue on in the text here because there's something, in fact, that is really good news as we consider opportunities for serving. I don't know how the call to serve lands on your heart, but here is a piece of really good news to consider as we consider serving. Verse 11 says that whoever serves should serve in the strength that God supplies. Serve in the strength that God supplies, which means there is power for service that comes not from ourselves, but from God. 
We may feel powerless, but God gives strength. And listen, if you feel worn out in serving, if you are tired, if you are overwhelmed by responsibilities, know this today, God supplies fresh strength for serving. Serve in the strength that God supplies. In Isaiah 40, it says, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he, the Lord, increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Brothers and sisters, God is renewing the strength of his people today. He's renewing the strength of his church to serve in the power that he supplies. Let the weak say, I am strong in the strength that God has given And then verse 11 continues with the reason God supplies power in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Why do we serve? Why do we cultivate and use our gifts? Our desire is not our own recognition, our own advancement, but to use our gifts to serve others and to glorify God. We must always be aware of the tendency to find our identity in our gifting. Lots of Christians do a good job keeping an eye on their weaknesses and their sinful tendencies. I think it is often our strengths that we must pay attention to as well because that is where pride can get the upper hand. Those who have a gift of hospitality will be inclined to perfectionism and obsessing over presentation. Those who have the gift of teaching will start to find spiritual life and a sense of accomplishment in their public role. Those with a gift of serving will have an excessive desire to be needed and find it difficult to receive service from others. Those with the gift of leadership like telling others what to do and may not be strong in listening and in following. Those with the gift of discernment can easily become critical. You see, every spiritual gift is capable of being distorted by sin and self. And so we must resolve that we will use our gifts for the glory of God alone. I remember very distinctly the first time I ever spoke at a conference. It was over 10 years ago. It was a a pastor's conference. The day before I was preaching, I inexplicably lost my voice. It's actually, this has never happened to me in my, it wasn't that I was using my voice a lot. It wasn't that I was uh, yelling and singing or anything. It was just my voice went. And it wasn't just like it was a little rough and raspy. It was like I needed to mouth. I can't talk at all my my voice was was gone and I remember interacting with others just it was very clear that if that's where I was at the next morning when I was preaching I would be incapable of preaching at all I felt God saying to me something very clearly in that moment and that is that Jared I've I've given you your voice and I can take it from you and so how about if we do this we do it for my glory 
and not for yours. Sound good? And, and I remember the sense of desperation and praying and waking up with such joy in my heart the next day just to have a voice and to say, Lord, let it be that it's used for your glory. Let it be that however we as a church serve, we do it for the glory of God. God gets the glory because he has given the gift he is the one who empowers our service and the use of our gifts makes him, not us, look good and glorifies his name. The end of all things is at hand and that is not a reason to panic or fear. It is really good news. And if it doesn't land on you as good news, it may be that you are not in Christ. And if you are not a believer, I encourage I exhort you to turn from your sin and trust in Christ in whom there is salvation, in whom there is hope. And for all who have repented of their sin and know Christ as Lord and Savior, the end of all things is at hand. Yes and amen. The future, your future in Christ is not hopeless, it is hopeful. Your future in Christ is filled with glory and meaning and that is what fills our lives in the present, here and now, with purpose and with significance. The end is near. Church, the end is near. Therefore, love one another. The end is near. Therefore, cover a multitude of sins. Practice hospitality. Use your gifts. Serve one another. Christian, God wants you to embrace your calling in the church and if we as a church family can increasingly be this kind of church first peter 4 kind of church the world is going to see christ in us and god will be glorified all the more in our life together i want to invite the band forward as i look at the way that this passage closes so the band can come forward the passage closes not with a command not with an exhortation, but with a doxology, a word of praise. As Peter considers in context the glory of Christ in the church and what Christ is doing through his people, his heart is swept up in adoration and worship. To him, to Jesus Christ, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. In other words, there's something in the consideration of this kind of community, including the call of God upon us, that should cause our hearts to be brought to this place of adoration, of glory, declaring that God alone has glory and dominion now and for all eternity. Glory be to God for saving us. Glory be to God for calling us to his service. Glory be to God for giving us this life together, for placing his love in our hearts, for empowering our service. Friends, whenever you see these fruits of the gospel in the church, whenever you see hospitality and love and forgiveness and service and gifts, praise the name of the Lord. Praise God for all his goodness to us. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen.